Exodus 20, 1 through 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. Word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. Some years ago, uh, there was a Scottish town, and someone placed uh, an advertisement in the local newspaper, and on the front page, a special notice to encourage the reader to look on the back page. And the back page was completely blank. It was empty, but those who looked clearly saw in the lower right-hand corner in small print these words, is this where you're putting God? Well, I'm going to start a series on the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are not, are, are, are not suggestions, they're commandments, uh, God's blueprint for living. Uh, some say they're out of date. Uh, like I said, some call them the Ten Suggestions. Jesus summed up all ten in just two, didn't he? You know, love God, love people. Um, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself, and hopefully uh, we're going to be doing that uh, with this Feed My Starving Children. I know uh, the church in Nicaragua that we connect with, uh, they use this, this very food that we're going to be packing. Uh, and we just built that feeding center uh, last year. So that's an awesome thing. Jesus came, he came not to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. So these Ten Commandments are not obsolete, but I think they are still without equivocation absolute. So the first command you know, is, I am the Lord thy God. I think the most glorious fact in the universe is this, that God exists and we can know him personally. And to help us really discover the first commandment, I want us to view this commandment from three different angles. In other words, we're going to view this commandment in 3D. And the first angle, angle is the declaration of it, if you're following along in the, the bulletin. Um, I am the Lord thy God, the declaration of it, the fact of it, God is I mean, that's important to realize. Well, first of all, I think nature declares that. In Romans 1.20, it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. That is, we see the invisible God by the visible creation. Everything you see bears this stamp. Made by God. Made by God. Even Aristotle said, The beauty, the order, the harmony of the universe is but and it's, it's an expression of God. Our scientists talk about the laws of science. But I wonder how many of them stop to ask, you know, whose laws are these? Scientists are no more capable of creating those laws anymore than Columbus was capable of creating North America. They discover these laws. And yet so many never stop to ask, you know, whose laws are these? I mean, look around once, and I think you'll agree with the soundness in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. I mean, you take a tiny little cell, the smallest unit of living matter. Scientists say that the cell is as complicated as New York City. And I hope yours is a lot in better shape, you know. But even smaller than the cell is the atom. And a billion hydrogen atoms is no thicker than the page in your Bible or in your hymnal. And even the atom is mostly nothing. 
I mean, there's more space relatively between parts of the atom than there is between the stars and the universe. Did you know that if you were to squeeze all the nothingness out of everybody on earth, they could fit in a two-gallon bucket? (laughs) That's right. You see, we're just mostly nothing except for the fact that God made us and he loves us. And so we see the smallness and the complexity of the universe. And then we think of the, you know, the hugeness or the vastness of the universe with light traveling at a rate of 106, 186,000 miles per second. That's past the moon in two seconds. And yet you wouldn't reach the nearest star until four years later. And 10 billion years later, you wouldn't be to the edge of the known universe. 10 billion years later, traveling at 186,000 miles per second. Think of the vastness of the universe, the minuteness of it, and then tell me that it all just happened, that it all just formed itself, and that it runs itself, and it orders itself. And when I see a watch, I know there's gotta be a watchmaker. When I see a house, I say there must be an architect. What about our bodies? That the psalmist says they're fearfully and wonderfully made. The evolutionist says, that just happened. You know, you blindfold some monkeys, put them in a room with a typewriter and some paper, and they'll come out with a Shakespearean sonnet. Give them enough time and anything can happen. I think it takes more faith to believe the monkey story, don't you? Give it enough time and frogs will turn into princes through evolution. No one will even have to kiss them. It just takes time. They say, well, I'm saying that creation declares that I am the Lord thy God. And not only does creation declare it, our conscience declares it. You know, throughout history, at any time and in any place, there's that innate desire within us, within the heart of man, to worship. There's something inside of us that just compels us to worship. How do you explain that all men everywhere hunger for God? I know why. Scripture says in Ecclesiastes 3.1 that God, he set eternity in their hearts. King David said, Psalm 42 verse 1, my soul longs for you as a deer pants for the water brooks. That is, there's a hunger. There's this universal hunger for God. But not only does creation and conscience declare it, the scriptures declare it. You know, the Bible never argues, really, the fact of God. It just assumes the fact, like, I am the Lord thy God. You know, Exodus 20, verse 1, Bruce just read it. In the beginning, God, you know, the very first book of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's no philosophy about it. There's, there's no rationale about it. There's no defense about it. It's just a pure, simple, profound statement of it. I am the Lord thy God. Not only does creation and conscience and the scripture declare it, faith declares it. Sometimes those people who like to be scientific, you know, and logical, well, you Christians just simply believe by faith that there's a God. It's just, just by blind faith. Well, they're right in the first part, but they're wrong in the second part. We believe faith by faith that there is a God, but not a blind faith. I learned this about faith today. You write it down in your heart. Faith is, faith is rooted in evidence. I've just given you some of the evidence. The resurrection of Jesus is another one, but faith goes beyond evidence. It has to in order to be faith, and then faith becomes its best evidence. It's rooted in evidence. It goes beyond evidence, 
and it becomes its own best evidence. I believe because I believe. Our God so made me, and our God so made you, that you would respond to him in faith. You were created, and you were made to respond with your spirit to God, just like your eye is to respond to light, and your ear is to respond to sound, just like Ryan did last Sunday. The spirit of man is so created that you would respond to God by faith, and it's not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. An atheist says, prove there's a God. You know, atheism is growing in our country. Did you know that? Prove there's a God. We can look at him and smile and say, prove there's no God. He thinks he can go into a laboratory and prove things. To try to find God in a laboratory would be like me tearing apart that piano to try to find a note. You know, you're going about it the wrong way. The atheist says, you Christians, you just believe there's a God. I say, you atheists, you just believe there is no God. Amen? <laughs> I have faith in God. The atheist has faith that there is no God. He cannot prove it, but simply believes that there is no God by faith. All people are believers. I've chosen to believe in God. The atheist chooses not to believe in God, but why? Not because there's no evidence. His problem is not intellectual, believe me. Never is his problem intellectual. Psalm 53 verse one says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And the word for fool is the Hebrew word nabal. And it doesn't speak of intellectual deficiency. It speaks of a moral deficiency. The word nabal, translated fool, speaks of a moral perversity. Now when it says, the fool has said, the immoral man has said in his heart, there is no God. The problem is not here. The problem is right here. Now actually in the Hebrew, it says the fool has said in his heart, no God. The words there is are supplied by the translators, but it literally reads the fool has said no God. Very similar when you're eating at the table for a meal and desserts pass to you, you say no dessert. I don't know how many of us would say that. Maybe no potatoes or no peas or something. No dessert. Not that there is no dessert, just no dessert. I don't want any. See, the reason that people don't know God is they don't want God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But really, no God, please. That is, no God for me. The declaration of it, I am the Lord thy God. The second angle that I want us to view this commandment from is, I want to call it the discrimination of it. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. With, with God, there must be no denial. That's the declaration of it. Also, there must be no rival. No rival. That's the discrimination of it. So Some don't believe in God. Others believe in the wrong gods. Some others believe in too many gods. I mean, the Greeks had 30,000 gods. Today in India, some people starve to death. You know, as sacred cows who are looked upon as divine roam the streets, there is one true God, and he is the one who must be served. There is more difference, listen, between the number one and two than between the number two and 2,000. There's something about one. There's a great difference between having one wife and two wives. But what's the difference between having two wives and 20? Singular means one, plural means two, 20, 200, 2,000. The discrimination of it have no 
other gods before me. Jesus said, seek first, in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom. Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters in Luke 16, 13. So what is your God? You can make a God out of anything. Sex can be your God. Sports can be your God. I'm not saying just because you rooted for the bison yesterday, the bison are your gods. Could be, though. Education can be your God. You could be your God. We Americans pride ourselves on the fact that we're not idolaters, but we may very well be idolaters. The Bible speaks of some who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Pleasure can be your God. The Bible speaks of some whose God is their bellies. I think I'm guilty of that sometimes. The Bible says covetousness is idolatry. What has your attention? What has your time? What has your energy? What are you really concerned about? Some love the almighty dollar rather than loving almighty God. Let me give you a test for idolatry. If there's anything you fear more than God, you're an idolater. If there's anything that you trust more than God, you're an idolater. If there's anything you love more than God, you're an idolater. Anything you fear more than God, anything you trust more than God, anything you love more than God. That's the meaning of the phrase, have no other gods before me. God will not share his glory. That's the discrimination of it. What do you love more than God? The declaration of it, I am the Lord thy God. The discrimination of it, have no other gods before me. And then the last angle that we'll view the first commandment from is what I want to call the demands of it. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And Lord means master. If he's the Lord, our God, he demands that we serve him, that we obey him. I mean, do you love God? Then obey God. John writes in his first letter, chapter 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. No, commandment keeping won't get you to heaven. Nobody can do it. But as a result of being saved, we should want to keep his commandments. This is the great personal Jehovah God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage, this is the great Jehovah God who came in the flesh. We just celebrated Christmas, and he died on the cross for you. His commands are not burdensome. His commands are not grievous. God has made salvation available to us. Anyone who denies the supreme fact must be the supreme fool. But perhaps there's a bigger fool than that. One who admits there's a God and then doesn't live like him. Listen to Romans 121. Because that when they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, it's not enough really to say, yes, God exists. Because when you know God, it's, I think, incumbent upon us, it's demanded upon us that we glorify God. You know, a lot of people grew up with catechisms like Luther's catechism, the larger one, the smaller one, the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and there's one uh, question that's always asked, what's the chief end 
You know, why do we exist? What is the chief end of man? And the answer always is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We viewed this first commandment from three different angles, the declaration of it, the discrimination of it, and the demands of it. Has this 3D view led you to discovery? Is God the Lord your God, or is he just the Lord, you know, a God? Is it the Lord is my shepherd, or is it the Lord is a shepherd? Have you ever stepped out in faith and said, Lord, Master, you know, just take my life. You call the shots, have thine own way. I challenge you to do that in your heart today, even as we partake of communion. And remember that he gave himself for us totally, and he wants us to give our bodies and ourselves back to him totally. Do you know why there's so much tension in the world? Do you know why there's so much turmoil in our lives? And it's because we're trying to serve more than one God. And it's pulling our insides apart. It's pulling our families apart. It's pulling our nation apart. Today, make a choice to serve the one true God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Discover him today. Maybe you could take a blank piece of paper and just sign your name to the bottom of it and say, God, this year you fill in the blanks. I'm giving you my life. You just fill in the blanks. I'm yours. I am the Lord thy God. Have no other gods before me. Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This year, the first Sunday of every month when we have communion, we're going to pray a little more in depth for our nation and prayers of repentance, prayers that God would uh, come in power and in might to our nation. And I know the National Day of Prayer, this year, uh, I was sent something that said there's three priorities, and priority number one is to pray You know, oh God, may you begin to raise up a love one another movement across America that forwards and advances Jesus' words to us to love one another. Like John 13, 34, love one another just as I have loved you. Priority number two is to pray, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be used of God to build build up America by blessing and adding value to each town and city in our nation. And the verse they use is from Proverbs 11.11. A city is built up by the blessing of the upright, but it's torn down by the mouth of the wicked. And then the last priority is, Lord, we want to ask you to be with the leaders of our local, state, and national governments as they work and make decisions together for the good of our nation. And it's calling us to pray for our local Uh, leaders, our state leaders, and our federal leaders. May I remind you that when Paul said for us to pray for those in authority over us, the person that was an authority over them during that time was Nero. So we need to pray, don't we? Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you uh, in humbleness. Lord, wanting you to touch our lives. We know that a revival starts with each individual. 
Lord, with us as individual people, individual families and churches and cities. And I pray, God, that you would raise up a love one another movement across America that advances your words to love one another just as I have loved you. Father, I pray that words that come out of our mouth would be words that build up and not tear down, that add value to every city and town and state in our nation. Heavenly Father, we are Christians. We're the ones that are made right by you. Therefore, as the upright, may we fulfill Proverbs 11, 11 in every town and city in the United States. May we bless each town and city by adding value to it in any way that we can. Heavenly Father, Proverbs 11, 11 says that the wicked tear down with their words the, the towns and the cities of our nation. But as the upright, we, may we choose to add value and to bless them. Heavenly Father, we ask that you raise up godly Christian men and women in their towns and in their cities who will run for local office and use their influence and add value by forwarding and blessing the future generations in these towns and cities. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless each town and city with the message and the encouragement of Jesus Christ when he said, love one another. And God, we think of the leaders in our own community, Lord, in our state and in our nation. And God, I pray for the police department, the fire department, the first responders, those who serve us, God. We just pray for an awakening within our hearts, Lord. We look at history and we read about the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening and different revivals and outpourings of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and we, we see where the whole nation repent, repents in various times and situations in our history. Lord, we know that that can happen again. To conclude and before uh, we take Holy Communion, I want to read some questions that Nancy Lee DeMoss wrote about revival that you can just ponder in your heart. And, it, and it's to answer the question, when do we need revival? And here's, here's a bunch of statements. We need revival when we do not love him as we once did. When earthly interests and occupations are more important to us than eternal ones. When we'd rather watch TV and read secular books and magazines than read the Bible and pray. When church dinners are, are better attended than prayer meetings. When concerts draw bigger crowds than prayer meetings. When we have little or no desire for prayer. When we'd rather make money than give money. When we put people in the leadership positions in our churches who do not meet scriptural qualifications. When our Christianity is joyless and passionless. When we know truth in our heads that we are not practicing in our lives when we make little effort to witness to the lost, when we have time for sports, recreation, entertainment, but not for Bible study and prayer, when we do not tremble at the word of God, when preaching lacks conviction, confrontation, and divine fire and anointing, when we seldom think thoughts of eternity, when God's people are more concerned about their jobs and their careers than about the kingdom of Christ and the salvation of the lost, when God's people get together with other believers and the conversation is primarily about the news, weather, sports, rather than the Lord. When church services are predictable and business as usual. 
when believers can be at odds with each other, not feel compelled to pursue reconciliation, when husbands, Christian husbands and wives are not praying together, when our marriages are coexisting rather than full of the love for Christ, when our children are growing up to adopt worldly values, secular philosophies, and ungodly lifestyles, when we are more concerned about our children's education and their athletic activities than about the condition of their souls, when sin in the church is pushed under the carpet, when known sin is not dealt with through the biblical process of discipline and restoration, when we tolerate little sins of gossip, a critical spirit, and lack of love, when we watch things on television and movies that are not holy, when our singing is half-hearted and our worship is lifeless, when our prayers are empty words designed to impress others, when our prayers lack fervency, when our hearts are cold and our eyes are dry, when we aren't seeing regular evidence of the supernatural power of God, when we've ceased to weep and mourn and grieve over our own sin and the sin of others, when we are content to live with explainable, ordinary Christianity and church services, when we are bored with worship, when people have to be entertained to be drawn to church, when our music and dress become pattern after the world, when we start fitting into and adapting to the world rather than the calling the world to adapt to the God's standards of holiness, when we don't long for the company and fellowship of God's people, when people have to be begged to give and to serve in the church, when our giving is measured and calculated rather than extravagant and sacrificial, when we aren't seeing lost people drawn to Jesus on a regular basis, when we aren't exercising faith and believing God for the impossible, when we are more concerned about what others think about us than what God thinks about us, when we are unmoved by the fact that 2.5 billion people in this world have never heard the name of Jesus, when we are unmoved by the thought of neighbors, business associates, and acquaintances who are lost and without Christ, when the lost world around us doesn't know or care that we exist, when we're making little or no difference in the secular world around us, when the fire has gone out in our hearts, our marriages, and the church, when we are blind to the extent of our need and don't think we need revival. Let's spend a little time in silence and just let those statements bring conviction. I know the Holy Spirit is convicting me. Father, and that's our prayer. We just want to be soft to you. We don't want to stiff arm you anymore and just go our own way. Even as believers, God, we want you to draw us back on the path with your staff of grace and your arms of love. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember your passion today as we partake of this holy meal so that we might have a passion for you and for others. In Jesus' name, amen.